Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And and when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, we are going to discover that authentic Christianity only accepts biblical teaching. The passage we have in front of us this morning is presenting us with a choice, traditional teaching or biblical teaching. And Mark, in his Gospels, he's telling the story of of Jesus. As we've come to this part of our series in Mark chapter 7, where we're looking particularly at verses 8 to 13, Mark, in the story, now is presenting us with a choice, traditional teaching or biblical teaching. And as he presents that choice, uh, as he tells the story of Jesus, as Jesus uh, presents that choice to us, It is stark. It is an either-or, not a both-and. It is not some traditional teaching and some biblical teaching, a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. You have to choose. We have to choose. We need to make a choice, traditional teaching or biblical teaching. And the claim that we're going to be exploring together this morning is that Mark, as he tells the story of Jesus, is showing to us that authentic Christianity only accepts biblical teaching. When the weather is somewhat warmer than it is presently, uh, I quite like to drink uh, a nice cold glass of juice for breakfast. If you go out to a restaurant, sometimes you can have a particularly good 
experience if you drink grapefruit juice. I like the, uh, the, the sharpness of it. Big glass of grapefruit juice. And that's a perfectly normal experience, I suppose, that probably we have all had or something similar to that. I like to drink grapefruit juice on a, Sunday, on a, on a, on a morning for breakfast. The FDA and medical doctors in general will tell us that if you are taking medication, say statin for high cholesterol levels or you have some sort of allergic reaction and therefore you're taking an antihistamine and if at the same time you drink grapefruit juice. Grapefruit juice inhibits the metabolism of the body to break down uh, an enzyme that particularly is designed to break down chemicals. And therefore, if when you're taking statin for cholesterol or um, antihistamine for your uh, allergic reaction, if at the same time you drink grapefruit juice, your body through that enzyme will not break down, metabolize that particular chemical, and your body will ingest too much of that chemical to potentially damage your liver and even lead to your kidneys becoming necrotic or dying and in potentially in the worst case becoming fatal. Grapefruit juice. With medicine. Changing it from something that helps you to be healthy to something that is poisonous. The grapefruit juice of tradition, if combined with biblical teaching, alters the medicine of the gospel from something that is healthy to something that is poisonous, damaging, even fatal. It's a choice. Now, as we've seen in our series, this matter of authentic Christianity is defined not by what we think of as authentic. When we think of authentic, we tend to think of authenticity in subjectivistic or individualistic or existentialist terms that is defined by what I feel is right and my own experience and my own story. Instead, we're defining authentic Christianity by the author and perfecter of our faith, namely Jesus, as the book of Hebrews Puts it, and therefore, authentic Christianity is what the author determines is genuine and real, not what I determine is genuine and real. And this matter of traditional teaching or biblical teaching and defining authenticity, we've seen as we go through this series that we looked at the Pharisees both then and now, and how the Pharisees are defined then and still as there's a Pharisaic attitude today by traditionalism, judgmentalism, and a fascination with what is external. And we saw how that last week is revealed in a particular attitude to worship, whereby worship has in it our own ideas rather than God's word, leading to the point whereby those who in Jesus' day were thinking that they're worshiping God, become so blind to who God 
is that actually Jesus could be right in front of them as the Son of God and they would miss him. And and this Pharisaism both then and now as it's revealed with traditionalism, judgmentalism, externalism, we're looking at the traditional part this week and then next week we'll look at the external part, it's a matter of great significance because today there are people who are, in the phrase, deconstructing the faith that they inherited from their fathers and their mothers and their grandparents. Their spiritual or religious inheritance has been deconstructed, borrowing a term from the French philosopher Derrida. And of course the question is, what should be deconstructed? What should not be deconstructed? What is authentic? What is not authentic? And the passage this morning is saying that you cannot combine the grapefruit juice of tradition with biblical teaching. You have to choose. It's one or the other. Authentic Christianity only accepts biblical teaching. Well, let's see how uh, Mark tells this story in, in the gospel and records for us the teaching that Jesus gave us in this regard. As I say, we're looking particularly at verses 8 to 13, but this contrast, first of all, between tradition and uh, God's Word is made particularly clear throughout the passage. You have a Bible open, so I hope you do here at College Church. You look down with me at verse 3, you'll see how Mark begins to make this contrast crystal clear. He describes how the Pharisees held on to the tradition of the elders, and that tradition was about hand-washing and all that that we looked at in the first week in this series. And then again, that he makes it clear that as he records this, he's not only talking about something historical, he's talking about a principle, an attitude of Phariseeism that can pertain still today. He says, verse 4, there are many other traditions that they observe. And then in verse 5, the Pharisees who come down to judge or spy on Jesus and those who are following Jesus and their, their freedom, their liberty in following Jesus with authenticity, uh, the question they have for Jesus is why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? As we saw last week, Jesus answers that by pointing to their worship revealing that their hearts are far from God so much so that they didn't even spot that the Son of God was right in front of them as they were questioning him. And then we come to how Jesus begins to make this choice stark. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You, you, One is being left for the other. And then again, verse 9, he says to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Jesus is actually being sarcastic there. He's saying, good job, well done for leaving the commandment of God to establish your tradition. 
And then he gives them a particular example that we'll look at in a moment that's known as Corban, verses 10, 11, and then 12. And then he lands this stark contrast by making what I think is one of the most extraordinary statements ever found on the lips of Jesus, verse 13. Thus making void the Word of God by your tradition. There is a power in the universe that can make void the Word of God. The Word of God, which the Bible tells us, is like a hammer. The Word of God, which the Bible tells us, is a sword that can cut right through to the heart of the matter, revealing the internal intentions of our own spirit and soul. The Word, the word of God that the Bible tells us, God says, will not return to Him empty, but will accomplish that which He has designed for it to do. That Word of God, there is a power in the universe that can deauthorize the Word, delegitimate the Word, Degrade the word, dethrone God and His Word. And that power is human tradition. I um, grew up in an English boarding school. If I was speaking to a group of English people, as soon as I said that, there would be a little series of shapes and ideas and pictures that would appear in your mind as to what that was that would have at least a facsimile representation of similitude of what it actually was like. But now I'm speaking to largely to a group of Americans, and when I say English boarding school, you don't, you don't know what that means. So to paint the picture a little bit, the, the boarding school that, that people of my generation went to would have been somewhat almost regimented, borderline militaristic in, in its... So I, I, I went, I, we, me and 13 other boys my same age in a, in a dormitory, not like these nice dormitories you have across the street, but a dormitory with like, uh, like iron bedsteads that were the, actually literally the same iron beds that my grandfather slept in with mattresses that were paper thin and no heating literally in the dormitory. So I remember waking up in the morning and seeing ice frozen on the inside of the glass. And it was regimented and ordered and disciplined in some ways, but in other ways the teachers allowed a lot of freedom and time away from any kind of supervision. So in another, in another way it was a little bit the survival of the fittest for all the all, all, all the people who went to schools like that. And given that it was a traditional English boarding school, there was chapel. Chapel was pretty much every day of the week. Monday, Tuesday, not Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, not Saturday, Sunday. And in that chapel, we would parade in and sit in our assigned seats. We would uh, sing a hymn. I listened to a very brief message. Before it all began, the senior boys would march in wearing their gowns and look at us with stern expressions if we were talking or messing around to get us to 
settle down and pay attention and then the teacher who was going to lead the service or the chaplain would walk in and we would all stand at the signal of his approach and we would sing a hymn and the organ would play and some liturgical intonation and backwards and forwards would happen and there would be, as I say, a very brief message which had different forms, but essentially the message was this, be good, work hard, don't complain. Be good, work hard, don't complain. The school had a motto, which in Latin is viteque mancipio nulli data omnibus usu, which is life is given to no one to keep, but for all it's on loan. So in other words, you better work hard because you're going to be dead soon. The school I went to before that had a Latin motto, which was floret qui laborat, which means he flourishes who works, work hard, be good, don't complain. And of course, that, what that means for English men, and largely at those time it was men, though by the time we were 16 it became co-ed, but what it meant for Englishmen of my generation at that time was that whenever we would go into a church service or a Christian religious setting, whatever was said, unless the Spirit of God was powerfully at work, what we would hear was, be good, work hard, don't complain. Which is not the gospel. It was a near perfect inoculation against the gospel. Human religious tradition. Now, having used that illustration, we need to be careful to make sure that our understanding of what tradition is, is what Jesus' understanding in his time was. Clearly, Jesus did not have in his mind English boarding school practices. What did he have in his mind, and how do we apply it today? Fortunately, Jesus used an illustration to make that clear for us, and this is the foreannounced Corban. So you look down at verses 10, here's Jesus' illustration to make it clear for us what he means. Verse 10, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is... Corban, that is, given to God, and that's Mark's parenthesis, because Mark almost certainly has in his mind his primary audience Gentiles, and therefore he needs to explain what Corban was. That is, given to God or a gift for God. Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Now, we don't know exactly how Corban functioned beyond what Jesus says here and a few other references in rabbinic sources, but we have a 
pretty good idea and we have enough from what Jesus says here to make the principle and then apply it perfectly clear. Essentially, what was happening was the following. A grown-up adult Jewish child with aged parents who were becoming infirm knew that according to God's word to honor his father and mother, he therefore had financial responsibilities to make sure they were taken care of. And of course, financial responsibilities can lead inevitably to financial loss if not perfectly managed and paying for your aged mother and father would be a financial loss and therefore there was invented a religious loophole which basically said that instead this particular part of money you could dedicate as Corban create a separate account that was for God and then you were not even allowed to use it to financially support your parents. It was Corban. You had to use it for, for God but get this from rabbinic sources almost certainly we know that the kicker was that having dedicated it to God, quote-unquote, Corban, quote-unquote, in this separate account, the adult Jew with aged or infirm parents, now with this account labeled Corban, could do pretty much whatever he wanted with that money. Thus making void the word of God. Now, it's somewhat tricky because even in the New Testament, tradition is sometimes used positively, that word. It's used in different ways. So, for instance, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, twice commends them for holding on to the traditions. And the same he says in Second Thessalonians, commending them for holding on to the traditions. But what he means by tradition there is the apostolic teaching, essentially, as recorded for us now in the New Testament. Biblical teaching. Paul also uses the word tradition negatively as he writes to the Colossians and tells them, do not let anyone to judge you by a new moon day, a Sabbath, or tradition. Then again, obviously, humans, part of the human condition is that as we go through life, we develop various patterns and habits, and any community will develop various patterns and habits, religious or not. And so, for instance, we tend to have our Bible study groups on Wednesday, and that you could say is a tradition rather on Thursday. So, it takes some discernment. When, we, when I was doing a church replant on the East Coast, we ended up purchasing a former Roman Catholic church building. And as we purchased this building, we needed to think carefully what traditions that would come with the 
physical structure of, of the building would we keep and what would we reject? For we knew as Protestants, Protestants have their own traditions, and we needed not to, in a knee-jerk way, reject everything that was built into the physical infrastructure of that former Roman Catholic Church building. On the other hand, we needed to think through carefully what was biblical and what was traditional. So, for instance, there was a large altar at the front of the church that we decided needed to go and be decommissioned. We were somewhat astonished to discover that after it had been decommissioned, instead of the huge altar being removed, there was just a very small square in the middle of the altar that had been taken out, which on further research we found out was where the relic had been in the altar. Uh, traditionally, Roman Catholic altars all have a literal relic in them, and to decommission them, you take out the relic. So I was, I was glad we'd done that. Th th there were other parts that were uh, challenging to think through. The, the, the church had the stations of the cross around it, which if you grew up in a Roman Catholic church or you know about Roman Catholicism, you will know it's fairly standard. We decided to remove them on, on reflection. Not that it seemed particularly nefarious or evil, but, but there were parts of the stations of the cross that were not explicitly in the New Testament, and so that could get confusing. But not only that, the, the emphasis on the suffering of Jesus seemed to run counter to the emphasis in the New Testament when the proclamation of the cross is not the proclamation of the crucifix, Jesus on the cross, but the cro proclamation that Jesus has risen from the dead. And it's the, the power of God to triumph over, over, over sin and death. It's a, it's a positive, life-giving message, not a oh, dark, suffering message. So we thought that sh the stations of the cross should go. There are other parts that are still more tricky. Uh, the, it was a Southern Baptist church I was leading at the time, which we used to joke was the most counterintuitive church in the whole country. An Englishman in New England leading a Southern Baptist church seemed a little unusual. But the Southern Baptist deacons discovered in the manse of the former priest who had been there a rather large case of beer. This was an interesting challenge for Baptist deacons. Do you drink it? Probably not. Do you sell it and use the money and put it in the offering plate afterwards? Doesn't sound quite right. Do you leave it on the side of the road for whoever wants it? Probably not a good idea. I wish I had a camera, but I can remember as clear as day looking out my window and noticing these deacons rather seriously gathered around a, uh, the drain in the parking lot and just pouring the beer down the drain. <laughs> then there was a vestibule that had written on the side of it, holy water, which on research we found that special water was sort of blessed by the bishop and then put in there. And I think one of the, one of the deacons just thought it was rather fun and took it home. I don't know what he put in it, but probably not holy water. There was a shotgun discovered in the priest's manse, which I was rather amused to discover seemed less of a problem to the deacons. They quite happily, one of them took that shotgun home, but they poured the beer down the, down the drain. If there had been English deacons, I think it would have been the other way around. But <laughs> but I tell you one thing we kept. 
the church had stained glass. We found it was actually rather expensive and original. So do we sell it and use it for kingdom work? Do we keep it? Of course, various people love the aesthetics of it. In the end, I decided that we would keep it in conversation with others. And the reason was not because it looked nice for me, nor because it was expensive, but because I discovered who it commemorated. It was an interesting decision. The church was named after a figure called Boniface. And in that stained glass, they had a picture of Boniface with an axe cutting down a tree. Boniface was born, we're not sure exactly where, but probably somewhere in the south of England, maybe around London or Kent or something. And he's known as the apostle to the Germans because he went off in the 7th century to take the gospel to the Germanic tribes and was very successful. He then went away for some reason or other for a little while on some other missionary trip. And when he came back, he discovered that large portions of the Germanic tribes had gone back to paganism and were starting to worship at the pagan tree. And Boniface, by his own hand, the story goes, got an axe, cut the tree down. He's called Boniface by the Pope. Boniface meaning good deed. And I thought to myself, yes indeed, a good deed. For human religious tradition, whether pagan or quote-unquote Christianized, must be cut down. Be Catholic, it became Protestant with our icons of Calvin and Luther and whoever else. It can be secular as well. Secular icons of Freud and Darwin and more recently Derrida with his deconstruction fetish that function as replacements. For the authority of God and His Word. And what is being said here is there must be a choice that's made. You cannot have one or the other. You cannot have the grapefruit juice of tradition and the medicine of the Bible. How do you tell? You know that um, Pixar, P-I-X-A-R, one of the most, uh, has created uh, some of the most successful movies in recent times. They are extraordinarily carefully um, developed with great attention to detail and massive creativity. But do you know that Pixar, every single movie that Pixar has made, is built upon six sentences. Once upon a time, every day, one day, which meant this happened, 
which meant this happened. Until finally, every Pixar movie is built upon those six sentences. The gospel is built upon four sentences. God made us to be in a relationship of loving obedience. We have all rebelled against Him, and God's just punishment is death. But God in His love sent His Son to take the death that we deserved. And therefore, if we respond with repentance and faith, we will live. Can you imagine a Pixar movie where someone inserted something different in one of those sentences? It would change the whole story. You would no longer be putting the golden slipper on Cinderella's foot, but on one of the ugly sisters. Human religious tradition, whether of a secular religious kind or a denominational of whatever kind, denominational religious kind, inserts into those four sentences of the gospel a change. God, God didn't really make you. You're not really that bad. Jesus' death is not sufficient. You don't need to respond. It's a choice. Jesus or Pharisees? You pick. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, thank you that the gospel is built on those four sentences. We pray, Lord, that as a church, will you keep them clear in our minds? And our hearts help us to believe and to proclaim that gospel to our friends. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.